Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are actually doing a video response of Kerrigan Skelly's Why I Am Not an Open Theist. And Kerrigan Skelly, he is a street preacher, and I have tremendous respect for street preachers. He's a friend of Jesse Morrell. And let's hear him out. Let's hear his arguments why he's not an open theist. He's open to it, as we will hear from his video. He's not... He's not like uh, anti-open theist crazy, you know. He, he's not he's not like those Calvinists who just rail against it with all their their might because you know that undermines all their negative principles about God. He's not that type. He's a rational, reasonable person, and he actually considers open theism as brothers in Christ. Open theists are brothers in Christ to him. Okay, welcome back to Refuting Calvinism YouTube channel. Uh, today's video is going to be a little bit different, as you can probably tell by the title, uh, than the usual video uploaded to this channel. <clears throat> Most videos on this channel are uh, gauged to be against Calvinism and its false doctrines. Today I'm going to address something different, um, something I've been accused of being several times, mostly by Calvinists, and there's many people who have understood me to be an open theist as well, uh, but... Yeah, Calvinists will do that. They'll find these little words and they'll be like, oh, you're a mannequin or, or uh, you know, you're this other obscure heresy from uh, uh, the 1300s, blah, 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 blah. It's like, come on, guys, grow up. Deal with the arguments. Deal with the arguments. They're involved in name-calling rather than intellectual pursuit. And Kerrigan, he, he, uh, he's experienced this in his life, and he's, he's talking about it right now. Let's uh, keep hearing him. I'm not. I never have been. <clears throat> so I kind of want to clear things up. And there's been a lot of people asking me questions about this lately and why I'm not one and and uh, what my reasons for those are. And uh, so I wanted to make a little video here. It's not going to be real thorough. I'm not going to address all the objections that Open Theist raised to the, I guess, Arminian perspective. I'm not an Arminian, uh, but the Arminian perspective of exhausted foreknowledge. Yeah, usually when people say you're Arminian, um, there's the three main types of views about God's foreknowledge of the future, and Arminian is just a blanket category. It doesn't necessarily entail everything that Jacob Arminius entailed in his thought process. It's just a shorthand way of knowing what people believe about the future, and some people take exception to that. Uh, they say, I'm not Arminian. They are Arminians in the sense for this debate for a quick categorization of their views. You know, people like linguistical shortcuts to know what you believe. And that's just one way of doing it. So some people take exception to terms, and I think that tends to be an overreaction. And, um, you know, of course, the difference I have with Arminians, I don't believe in original sin. I believe in natural ability. I don't believe in prevenient grace. I believe in free will. I don't believe in a born with sinful nature. I believe in an acquired sinful nature over time through habitual sinning. Um, so there's issues. That, that's why I'd say I'm not an Arminian. But I do hold to the, I guess you could say, the Arminian view of this issue. And um, just so you know, uh, the kind of the road I've been down for, with this issue of open theism is I've read a lot of books on it. I've done a lot of stuff. In fact, let me just show you some of the books I've read on it. Uh, I've read most of each of these books. First one is uh, by Greg Boyd, God of the Possible. 
that's a pretty good primer on open theism. And uh, it's, a, it's good that he points this one out as one of them that he's read. He's uh, intellectually considered open theism. I've read most of that one. Uh, then there's also, uh, and that's of course for open theism. And then I've also read most of this one, Does God Know the Future? by Michael Saya. And if someone's looking for a biblical case for open theism, that might actually be the best book out there right now that just just entails mostly biblical proof and biblical evidence going over the text of the Bible and what the text of the Bible says. So it's great that he's picked up these two books. It's great that he's reading these two books so he could accurately understand what open theists believe. I heard that's from what my open theist friends say. That's probably the best one out there. Uh, then I've read a couple books against it. Uh, Their God is Too Small by Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware, of course, he he's, likes to bloviate a lot. He likes personal attacks. He doesn't like to deal honestly with people's objections. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, John Sanders will list seven objections, and he'll deal with only, like, one objection of the seven to a passage. That's commonly used for Calvinism. And then he thinks his job's done. It's not. He likes to name call. And, of course, he led the crusade to get open theism kicked out of the Evangelical Theological Society. And, uh, and this is more of a polemic against uh, open theism. That's accurate. And then uh, Millard Erickson, uh, what does God know and when does he know it? That comes from the against open theist crowd as well, but it's more of an ironic book. Yeah, and that's actually one where the Calvinist uh, tries to be a little bit more objective in how he treats the subject matter. So Kerrigan Skelly is spot on for his descriptions of these works as it is. So he's a rational guy. He knows what he's talking about. And then I've listened to lots of audios. I've watched uh, this DVD, A Debate on Open Theism, uh, with James White and John Sanders. And I thought both of them did horrible in that debate, to be honest with you. Uh, James White usually does pretty good in his debates. Um, of course, I don't agree with his theology, so teriology, which is obvious, but I do appreciate some of his other efforts he does uh, when it comes to debating. Uh, and we got a podcast on one of the discussions between James White and John Sanders. It's different than this debate. The debate... John Sanders is not a debater. What he is is he likes conversations. He likes uh, talking to people in normal tones. He's not aggressive. And it really comes off in this debate format where he's up against this Calvinist, James White, who is not gracious. Uh, he doesn't accurately portray the beliefs of open theists or usually anyone he's talking to. And he's incredibly arrogant and just bombastic. But I think he was pretty bad in this debate, to be honest with you. I thought both sides were pretty horrible. Not just because I disagree with both sides, because they just didn't uphold their position very well. Uh, John Sanders was way too soft, didn't push the issue with James White on certain issues. And James White uh, didn't seem to really understand the position, or maybe John Sanders' position is different than all the open theists I've read, because there is some variance when it comes to the open theist position on things, to, how they respond to certain things, you know, why they're suffering in the world. Uh, you know, why certain things happen, um, etc. And of course, uh, one of my really, really good friends and brother in the Lord, Jesse Morrell, is an open theist. And uh, we've had lots of discussions about this. I've heard him teach on it. I've read his articles on it. And I've also read articles from the librarytheology.com website, which I am the creator of that website. 
and Jesse was the one who collected all the resources for that. And you can look at the Open Theist article page and video page, and uh, you can see for yourself. It's a good website. I suggest people go check out those resources he is talking about. I've engaged in all those resources just about. So I've looked at this issue pretty thoroughly. And there was at one point in time when I was considering open theism, and, um, you know, even in the open air a couple times at different universities, people would ask me a question about how can man have free will and God knows what they're going to do anyway. And uh, I said, well, maybe this, maybe that. I haven't decided yet. And, uh, but I've never been an open theist. I've considered it, even considered it pretty, uh, pretty closely, but never became one, uh, never was uh, proclaiming it was the truth, was just searching it out and figuring things out. Uh, so one of the reasons I'm making it, like I said, is because there's lots of Calvinists who accuse me of being an open theist. Not that I think that's a bad accusation, uh, because I have most of my, a lot of my friends are open theists. Uh, a lot of people who believe the same that I believe: no original sin, no born sinful nature, you know, conditional security, holiness, perfection. A lot of them are open theists. So I consider them very good friends, and I don't want to offend anybody. And that's why I probably why I've, I've held off so long from doing a video on this. But I think it's about time to do one. And um, so I've had a lot of talks at Open Theist Friends, and... Um, I'm going to go over something real quick here. When I call Calvinists, when I call them Platonists, what I'm saying is their views... I'm not saying that their views just line up with Platonism. I am li literally accusing their views of being derived from Platonism through historical means. I could point to it. I could point to Augustine and his infatuation with the Platonists. I could point to Justin Martyr and his love of the Platonists. I could point to the language used throughout the Church Fathers, Origins language about the Platonists. Platonism is Calvinism, and there's a historical roots in it. So I'm not just trying to name call. I don't just say, oh, your, your views are like, like the Gnostics, and therefore we should reject your views. No, literally speaking, your views, Calvinists, are derived from the Platonists. That's not what the, how the Calvinists operate, though. When they when they call names to open theists, when they call them, you know, uh, they they say, "Oh, you're, you're heretical because whatever council or whatever." That that's not what they're doing. They're not saying your views are based in these beliefs, and they're just a derivative. They're they're saying your views are similar. But Calvinist beliefs are literally derived from Platonism. I'm going to point that out. So it's not a double standard when I accuse Calvinists of Platonism. I still consider them brothers and lord. I just think they're wrong. And uh, Calvinists will accuse me of, of not coming out against them like I should if I think they're wrong. Well, the issue is this. I don't think they're false teachers like you are. Uh, I don't think this issue is as big as the issue of Calvinism versus the Bible. Because I think Calvinism aligns the character of God. I don't think open theism does. In fact, I think one of the reasons some people believe in open theism is to, is to vindicate the character of God, but I don't think that's needed. And hopefully you'll be able to see why in this video. Yeah, I don't think that's necessarily needed either. The uh, reason I'm an open theist is the same reason someone like Christine Hayes, who's not a Christian, why they will talk about the Bible as if ever, the writers of the Bible were open theists. It's because literally that's how the text was written. That's how it's presented. It's how it's presented to ancient Israel. That's how ancient Israel speaks about God. It's just textual. It's, it's biblical scholarship. But we go on. Okay, so there's three reasons uh, why I believe open theism is wrong. Uh, one is the is philosophical reasons. 
Uh, I'll get that in here in a minute. Uh, number two is scriptural reasons. There's lots of scriptures I believe open theism cannot deal with and not only can't deal with now, and I've never seen anyone deal with it, but I don't think ever will be able to deal with it. And that's why one of the reasons, main reason I'm not open theist. And there's also the historical reason. Uh, you look at the early church fathers, there's no one in the early church that I've seen who's anywhere near an open theist. In fact, they're the exact opposite. They're basically what I believe. Of course, they're not Calvinist either. Okay, so let's start with the philosophical aspect here. Uh, there's three words, three terms you need to know for this philosophical aspect. There's first certainty, necessity, and contingency. Those are the three words. Certainty, necessity, and contingency. Certainty has to do with factness. Has to do with knowing something for a fact. Has nothing to do with you forcing it to happen or making it happen. It has to do with factness. Uh, then there's necessity. Necessity has to do with an outside force making it happen. Um, which would really be comparable to the Calvinistic view of uh, determination. How God decrees or ordains all things whatsoever come to pass. That would be uh, a, you know, akin to necessity. And then there's contingency, which has to do with free will. It has to do with probabilities and possibilities. Can it be this way or can it be that way? And uh, So those are the three terms. Do you want certainty, which really has to do with foreknowledge. Uh, necessity has to do with predestination. And contingency has to do with free will. Now, the mistake I think both Calvinists and open theists make is uh, basically equating certainty with um, necessity. Uh, if God knows for certain something's going to happen, according to the open theists and according to the Calvinists, they agree on this foundation, then there is no contingency. So the Calvinists hold on to their necessity and their certainty, and therefore they give up their contingency. There is no contingency in their view because God has predestined or ordained all things whatsoever come to pass. So no matter what the Calvinists say, um, there is no uh, contingency in their view. They, they, may be, they may say things like, well, man, we believe man has free will um, because, you know, as a sinner, he can choose whatever sin he wants. But that goes against what their view says, is God predestines all things whatsoever come to pass. Um, and, or they may say that, uh, you know, once God has regenerated somebody, uh, they choose to repent and they choose to trust. God doesn't do it for them. Uh, but then the question I'd have for them is, is there ever been a time when someone has been regenerated where they haven't repented and haven't trusted? And they would answer no, which means, for lack of better words, they've been forced to repent and forced to trust in Jesus Christ by God himself and by his, uh, his predetermination. And the open theists would go the opposite direction. Uh, the, again, they hold to the same foundation. Basically, the certainty and necessity are equated and now uh, they get rid of uh, both of those things, and they hold on to contingency. Now, the, the open theist will say, of course, that God knows all things. He is omniscient because he knows all things that can be known. Um, and uh, so he'd still be omniscient. It's just the future is not in the realm of knowledge. So it has to do with whether God's in time or not. And that's one thing Calvin is... All right, he's jumping around a little bit here, and uh, I let him talk for a while. But let's talk a, a little bit about time travel. Time travel. I like these time travel movies. Uh, I've watched pretty much any time travel movie that exists that's out there, and they all fundamentally break down because you encounter something where you know the causation happens after the event that caused it. So let's say that God knows the future. That means God knows something in the future that's caused by a past action so how, how does that how does that work god knows something in the future and his 
his knowledge of it comes before what causes that action. Can God, here, here's a question, that's my same question to Molinus. Uh, I've never heard an answer because there's not an answer. And this is why time travel movies break down. So God knows something's going to 100% happen in the future. Can God tell me what I'm going to do tomorrow and then can I change that? Because if God knows 100% what's going to happen in the future, he knows what I'm going to do. And can telling me make that false? Do, do you understand the problem here? The problem here is if that event is for certain going to happen in God's mind, God can't do anything. Uh, God's powerless to change that event. I'm powerless to change that event. And nothing that happens can change that event because that event is fixed. This is why these time travel movies break down. You can't go into the past and uh, shoot your grandma because your grandma had to have your mom and your mom had to have you and you had to go back in time to do this. And so how do you exist to go back in time and do this if your grandma is shot to death and you're never born? So talking about philosophy, and we're not even talking about philosophy right now. We're just talking about science, cause and effect. There's no theory that's rational, which includes knowledge of the future, fatalistic future, anything like that. Anything that involves time travel or omniscience of future events is not a rational position, unless, unless you're a complete fatalist. Man's fatalist, uh, God's fatalist, everyone's fated to do what they do. That's the only view that works with any knowledge of the future. And I'm using knowledge in the absolute sense here. I'm not using knowledge in the sense that I'm going to post this video on YouTube. I know that. That's the common understanding of knowledge. The knowledge I'm talking about here is 100% knowledge. Knowledge that there's not a meteor going to hit my house before I post on YouTube. No one would call that a failure of knowledge if that happened and I said, oh, I was going to post this on YouTube. And no one would say, oh, I don't know that I'm going to post this on YouTube. No one's going to do that or think like that. Only in this Calvinistic mindset where God's knowledge has to be like 100% and it has to defy our common understanding of what knowledge actually is. I'm posting this video on YouTube, evidenced by you watching this right now, and I know the future. Even though the future is not set, the future is contingent, and this event, me posting this video, did not have to happen. Let's play. People seem to understand they will be straw man, the open theist perspective on this issue. Um, but, and they would say there's some things that God knows for certain will happen because he is predestining those things to happen. He brings them to pass by... Yeah, I know I'm going to post this video on YouTube um, because I have the power to do that. And I understand how the world works. And I did post this on YouTube. You're watching it. You're watching it. Prophecy. Prediction on my part. So am I omniscient? Do I have this uh, mystical crystal ball of the future to know this sort of stuff? Do I? Or am I a person, a human being? And how much more powerful is God? How much more capable of doing things is God? Does God have knowledge of the future? Yes. Is everything in the future contingent? Yes. Do I have knowledge of the future? Yes. Is the future contingent? Yes his power, and he's already determined that he will do those things. So the only things that God knows in the future that will happen for sure are the things that he has determined will happen. 
Right. And you see this in the Bible, throughout the Bible, where God says, you know, I'm not going to lead these people by the way of the Egyptians because they might, they just might turn and go back to Egypt. Or Jesus says, if there's any way to forego the cross, I would like to take that way. Because he thinks that the future is contingent and that even though God has plans, those plans can change. And Jeremiah says that, no, if the people change, then God won't do what he thought to do and God won't do what he said he was going to do. The entire Bible is written as if God's word is contingent on human actions. The entire Bible is written like that. Uh, other than that, the future free will choices of man are outside of, of the realm of his knowledge because the future can't be known. These future free will people, if he, these, these free will agents have not determined what they're going to do yet, so God couldn't possibly know it. So the only thing God knows for certain about the future is um, what he's already determined will happen. Now he knows. I know for certain I'm posting this on YouTube. And so what kind of certainty are we talking about? What kind of contingency we're talking about? If you're using absolute language that only exists in these discussions on metaphysics, then no, God doesn't have certain knowledge of the future. But that's not how normal people think and normal people talk. So disclaimers would be nice in these conversations so that people say, I'm not talking about normal concepts of knowledge. I'm not talking about normal concepts of assurity. I'm talking about these uh, super specific metaphysical concepts of knowledge of the future and certainty. Things that we do not encounter in real life. We don't. That's for certain all the possibilities that can happen because he's, he's wise and all-knowing and he understands all things and his brain is way above our brain, infinite knowledge. Um, but he doesn't know for certain the future free will act as a man. He just knows what could happen. And, of course, what will happen is in the realm. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting statement. I know all sorts of things that free will people are going to do in the future. I do. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty easy to do. I know if I go to Walmart right now, um, people at the cash register, they will let me give them money in exchange for Doritos. I don't even have to know who the cash register person is. I don't have to know if they're male or female. I don't have to know them personally. So Abraham in the Bible, he says, if I go to this foreign city, this pagan city, they will see my wife and they will kill me because she's beautiful and they're going to want to be with her. He knows future free actions of people, people he doesn't even know, just because he knows people. It doesn't, it's not hard to predict human actions, human behavior. And so this talk about God not knowing future free actions of people, that, that's, a, that's a little bit outside the realm of what we are familiar with when we're just talking about our knowledge of what people are going to say and what people are going to do. And then we also have to take in consideration the counterexamples found throughout the Bible. God says, you will return to me. And then they didn't return. God thought Israel was going to return and serve him. They didn't. God says, also, he says, you know, how much more, what more could I have done? I did everything. I expected you to return to me and you did not. So sometimes people defy expectations. And that happens in the Bible. It's, it's not like the most common theme. It's not like God's incompetent when he's judging human action, but you get the sense that God's expectations are thwarted time and time again. The cycle in the judges where the people, they rebel against God. They worship other gods. God comes in. He raises up a judge. It saves the people. And people praise him for a little bit. And then they turn. And guess what? Guess what? 
they don't get reformed, they become more wicked, more wicked. And the cycle continues, the cycle continues. And God says, you know what? I'm not going to save you anymore because this cycle is not working for me. It just, it doesn't, I'm, I'm not getting any output from this. It's not working out. I keep saving you guys. You become more wicked. So I'm done. I am through with it. But let's go on. Of knowledge of what could happen. Uh, but like I said, they deal away with certainty when it comes to the future free will choices of man because God couldn't possibly know them because it's not in the realm of knowledge. But see, I go the, I, I'm kind of in the middle, I guess you could say. Um, I think, you know, there, there are two sides of the, same, of the pendulum, and I'm kind of back where I think the biblical middle is. And I think certainty and necessity are talking about two different things. I think God can know factness, certainty about the future, but people can still have contingency. And of course, the Calvinist open theist would probably both ask me, well, how is that possible? But let me give you a couple, let me give you an example of how I believe that could be possible. Um, and then this is just... Let, let, let's go into this real quick, and let's recall my question. Can God tell me what I'm going to do tomorrow, that he 100% knows that I'm going to do tomorrow, then I can I as a free agent, choose to do something else. He's going to tell me what cereal I will eat tomorrow morning. And can I change that? Can that happen? Does God know the future 100% sure or doesn't he? Can free will agents change what God knows is the future? Philosophical now. Um, we'll get into the scriptural reasons for this later on. Uh, philosophically speaking, I know for certain what happened yesterday. Let's just use for example. Um, let's say on Tuesday. Tuesday of this week, I went to, with Brother John and Brother Tracy, I went to the uh, University of Louisville to preach the gospel. We were there for six hours. <clears throat> I know with certainty that those things did happen. I know with factness that those things did happen. Uh, but while they're happening, I have contingency, John has contingency, Tracy has contingency, every person hearing our preaching has contingency, but I know for certain that it did happen. And this is the same with God knowing the future. Yeah, contingency only works for future actions. Once something's gone and done, there's no contingency anymore. You don't have free will to change the past. So right, right away, his example is not lining up with you know, what he's trying to prove. But let's go on. Free will choices of man. I believe he knows them all with certainty. But I believe that we, uh, before we perform them, we still have contingency. Now, God knows what we will do, but does not take away our contingency or our free will in the matter. Yeah, let's say you sin and you murder someone. You can't just go and undo that. You can't travel to the past uh, and say, oh, no more. We're not going to do that. We have contingency. Once it's done, it's gone. It's, it's in stone. It happened. It's an event that occurred, and there's no changing it. The best view of how we experience life is presentism. The only thing that's currently real is the present. The past is done, gone away with, uh, set in stone. It, it's, it's in the past. You can't change it. There's no contingency. The future is yet to be decided. And that's how the Bible talks about how God acts, how God responds, how God deals with changing circumstances. He often says, I'm not going to do what I said I would do because I see that you guys repent. Like, for example, in Jonah, God responds to contingent actions. And a lot of times these actions 
like the Ninevites, the Ninevites repenting. Was that in God's mind that the Ninevites would repent? God prophesies against all sorts of nations who do not repent all the time. Uh, Tyre, Egypt, you know, just read the, the prophets in exile. They prophesy against all these pagan nations. None of them repent. Nineveh repents. God says, oh, I see that they repented. I in turn repent. So the past is certain, but there is free will and happen. The future is certain in God's mind, not in my mind, because I don't know God's mind. I don't know everything that God knows. But the future is certain in God's mind, but it's still contingent for me because I have not performed what will happen yet. Can God tell you what he knows you will do for certain? And can you do something else? Can you choose to do something else? Or, or is the God's view of the future fatalistic? It has to happen. And there's no changing what God knows God knows, that, that, that's the Armenian claim, God knows what will happen. So can God tell me what I'm going to do tomorrow, and can I choose to do something else? Um, then this other philosophical issue, this, this is just one I'm going to touch on. Like I said, there's not going to be like a thorough refutation of open theism, but just some reasons why I am not an open theist. Um, the question arises, how can God repent? How can God be sorrowful? How can God be angry? Etc. If he knows... Uh, what will happen, what man will choose, what he will do in each and every situation. But let me give you some natural examples to help you understand how someone can be angry, sorrowful, sad, whatever it may be, uh, and still know something's going to happen. Take the death. Okay, so what do we get in these examples? Uh, our, our last podcast was the use of repentance in the Bible, two podcasts ago. The last one was on Manichaeism. How do, how do those phrases, how do they work in context? In Genesis, uh, God says, I am sorry I made man. I see that man has uh, become wicked. I am sorry that I have made them. What's he repenting over? What's he sad about? He's sad about his own action in creating mankind. And what does he undo? He undoes the action that he's sorry about. So he uncreates man. It's this God is sorry for something, uh, says he's sorry for it, and undoes that. I am sorry I have made Saul king. I'm going to undo what I'm sorry about doing. And it's not God being sorry that Saul is king. It's not God being sorry that man is wicked. God is sorry that he originally chose to create man. God is sorry that he originally created or appointed Saul. Because Saul has turned out to be a disappointment. Because God is acting in time. He's responding to the events as they occur. And sometimes God has regrets. A normal word that's used for when man regrets something is used for when God regrets something. Kerrigan Skelly, what combination of words would you accept uh, in the Bible to believe that God repents, changes his mind about something he thought in the past? How about in Jeremiah where he says, I will repent of what I thought to do. And then very, very, like two verses later, he says, I will repent of what I said I would do. So you got this dual concept. He's going to repent of both of what he thought he was going to do and what he said he was going to do. And the word is repent. It's not just a regret. It's just not an emotional reaction. It's not me watching a movie and crying to the notebook. I don't know the notebook, but that's just an example. That's not what's going on in the Bible. When you read the context, God's repentance is tied to actions undoing what he's repenting about. It's true repentance. Of a loved one. 
And I've lost two grandmothers and a great-grandmother in my short life. And I'm sure I'll lose other love, uh, family members and loved ones uh, before I die. It's a great possibility that I will. But the ones that did die, before they died, I knew at some point in time that they would die. Um, I knew they would die because the Bible says they will die. And um, even though I knew they were going to die at some point in time. Look at this. He's got knowledge of the future. He knows the future. He knows the future. He must be omniscient. Oh, no. Uh, but th this just illustrates uh, this double usage of knowledge of the future, how people use it in a metaphysical sense, and then they disclaim normal conversations about knowledge of the future because it doesn't meet their metaphysical definitions. But he understands normal everyday talking about how people know the future. He knows his grandma was going to die. I know it. I know my parents are going to die. I know I'm going to die. I know my kids after me are going to die. And no, I don't think that like the rapture or whatever is going to happen within my lifetime. I don't think so. Uh, prediction. Let's see if I'm a prophet of the future. And uh, so far, I got a pretty good track record predicting things accurately of the future. So I must be omniscient, right? That's it's a joke towards Calvinists, not towards Kerrigan Skelly. He sounds like a rational person who understands, you know, this double standard. I mean, he would he listen to this. But, but Kerrigan Skelly uses double standards in his own language about God's knowledge of the future. Right. And, you know, I may see my mother die, my father die, I may see siblings die, I may see children die, God forbid, but I may. I may see good friends die. My friend John McGlone, he may laugh about this, he's almost 50 years old. And uh, if we keep preaching like we are and he gets given a tact like he, he has been, he may die before me. And I may even see it happen for all I know. I mean, I don't want that to happen, but that's a good possibility. But when it does happen, and when my other loved ones have died, I was very sad. I cried. I wept over it. Uh, even if I knew they were going to go to heaven, I wept over it because I was going to miss them. Um, when I got married... I, you know, I basically knew that at some point in time, me and my wife would get in arguments. Or I might get angry with her. I might get sad at things she had done. Uh, my children, I know at some point in time, they're going to... Again, this doesn't explain the instances where God says, I thought this would happen, but then something else happened. I thought you guys would return to me, but you didn't. You know, stuff like that. Sin. And uh, when they sin, I'm going to be disappointed in them. I might be angry. I might chastise them or discipline them for rebuke them for what they've done. Like the prophecy of Tyr. God says, you're going to take King Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to take Tyr. Uh, you're going to utterly destroy it. Uh, you're going to loot it. And then it doesn't happen. And God says, oh, I'll give you a contingency prize, Egypt. You know, As it, those things happen in the Bible. That's how the Bible is written. And there's no apologists, there's no Calvinist uh, jumping into the text and saying, this is why this happened and we need to explain it away because this doesn't uh, meet uh, future foreknowledge of the future uh, texts or our beliefs on negative theology. The Bible authors don't do that. They don't do that because they're all open theists. They all understand that sometimes events change and thus we get uh, the parable of Jeremiah and the potter in which God doesn't do what he said he was going to do or do what he thought he was going to do because events change. And it's not like God's a liar, right? Because the only way he'd be a liar is if he was an Arminian God, if he was a Calvinist God, and he says he's going to do something knowing full well that that will never, ever happen no matter what events occur, you know?
the only way you're a liar is if you knowingly say something you know is false. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't know what's going to happen. And uh, every open theist I know would say that they know that their child at some point in time will sin. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't be sad about it when it happens. True. And the same thing with uh, loved ones dying. Um, it doesn't mean they shouldn't be sad or upset or angry about it when it happens. Right. We are emotional beings. We're made in the image of God. Yeah, usually our emotions are because we experience these things in real time. And a God that's outside of time who experiences everything at the same moment, the same instance, that's not the God of emotions who reacts to events as they occur, who sees and, uh, you know, responds, has anger. God says, I'm going to satisfy my wrath in you, and I'm going to just consume you, Israel, until my wrath is satisfied. Uh, Jeremiah says, don't punish me in your anger. Uh, please give me a cooling off. Uh, King David says that. He, they, they understand God as in time, God with real emotions, and God responding to events in real time. That's how the Bible's written. And, and we're emotional because God's emotional. So God can be angry at sinners every day and still know they're going to continue in their sin. God can be uh, repentant and sorrowful that he created mankind in Genesis 6 and still knew that this, know this was going to happen. Um, God repents of his own actions. God's not repenting. Uh, God's not like, you know, you know, repentance is like a sadness. God's not being sad over man becoming evil. That's, that's not what the text says. God's sad that he, in the past, created man. Important distinction. That's what the text reads. That's what the text says. And that's the event that God undoes. He undoes his creation. So that's how I would answer that philosophical issue. But there's some scriptures, I think, that would help us in this issue as well to see how Jesus, who knew certain things were going to happen, how he was sorrowful as well. Um, let's turn to John chapter 11 in verse 33. It's talking about uh, Lazarus. And I'm going to start uh, after Mary had fallen at his feet, after Lazarus had died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, talking about Mary, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And uh, we saw before then that Jesus actually could have gotten there. Yeah, and in Jesus, and Jesus, he's responding in real time. He's responding when the information comes to him that his friend has died. That, that's when he weeps. Uh, that when, that's when he shows emotion. And God responds in will, real time as information comes to him. That's what's happening in the Bible. No, no one, I don't, I don't think anyone's going to dispute the fact that you can't show emotion if you know something is going to happen. I could watch a movie, a sad movie. I don't know what, what a good sad movie would be, but I could I could watch it knowing full well that I've seen the movie before and the sad stuff is going to come up again and I could still be sad watching this movie. Before Lazarus died, and in fact it says right before this, he says um, in um, John chapter 11 once again, and he says, let's see, in verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and his, her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her. Yeah, I don't know if any open theists who actually like make the point that he's trying to refute here. So I'm not, I'm not sure if he's tracking 
what open theists believe. I'm not sure about that. He might have to quote an open theist. I'm not sure saying that they don't exist. They probably exist somewhere making these points, but I don't make the point. Other people don't make the point that I know of. And he might be building an argument to something that's not really an open theist point. Maybe. Here, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters went sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone stumbles in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. So we understand what uh, Kerrigan is saying here. But here's an alternative reading. Alternative. Um, I'm not saying it's like the one true reading. Maybe Jesus said, when he said this is not a sickness to death, maybe he wasn't expecting Lazarus to die. And then when Lazarus died, he knew about it uh, through God the Father, gave him the information, you know. Throughout John, and I've documented this, Jesus has lack of omniscience. Uh, in Mark, we also see this, where Jesus says specifically that he doesn't have knowledge of the end days, when that's going to happen. It's God. Or Jesus is not on omniscient being, not, not as uh, placed in the Bible. God has a lot of knowledge. He has access to a lot of knowledge through God, but he himself is not omniscient as portrayed by the Gospels. And so, alternative reading, Jesus didn't expect Lazarus to die, Lazarus died, and Jesus made the best of the situation, resurrected him. Kerrigan Scully's reading, which he's not assuming that other reading has a possibility, and I understand why he did it, he probably didn't think of it as a possibility, but his reading is that Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, and that he'd resurrect Lazarus, which... I, that's that's a valid reading as well, but there's there's multiple ways to understand this. It's important when we're reading the Bible to consider possibilities, what could be the case, and then look at look at textual clues to see what's the best reading, what's the most probable, and not discount possible alternative readings. Like if someone came and said, "Well, Jesus didn't expect him to die, and uh, Jesus would be a liar if he said his his sickness is not to death, and then Lazarus died." You know, there's there's a way to avoid Jesus being a liar in that sense. And Kerrigan Skelly's reading might be different than someone else's. That's that's all I'm saying here. There's multiple ways to understand this, multiple ways to read this. And figuring out what the best reading is, that's just part of reading the Bible. So Jesus knew that Lazarus would die, uh, which is not a problem from an open theist Maybe. perspective. Maybe. And Jesus actually stayed where he was a little bit longer so that Lazarus would have time to die so that he can go there and raise him from the dead. Uh, the text doesn't actually explicitly say Jesus knew Lazarus would die. Uh, after Lazarus does die, that's when Jesus says, I'm going to basically raise him from the dead. That's when he knew that he's going to have to go raise Lazarus. 
So there's some assumptions here, some assumptions he's bringing to the text. Sorry about that. I live next to a stupid, stupid road. But we'll keep going. And even though Jesus knew he would raise him from the dead, and then after he rose him from the dead, uh, people would rejoice over it and see a, a great miracle in seeing Lazarus rose from the dead, uh, he still wept. He still wept when Mary and Martha wept, and the other Jews wept with them. He wept with them because he's an emotional being. Just like God's an emotional being, just like we're made names of God, we're emotional beings. Exactly. Jesus wept. So even though Jesus knew he would raise him from the dead, and that Mary and Martha would become uh, glad because of it, he still wept. And then in John chapter 13, let's turn there for a minute. Another example of Jesus. And this is after Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And let's start in verse um, 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know who I have chosen, but the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Speaking of Judas, obviously. Now I'll tell you before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So, Jesus is declaring, most assuredly, with certainty, a future free will choice of Judas, that Judas will betray him. He's declaring it before it happens. And if open theists are going to maintain their position of, of contingency at all times, then Judas had some contingency at this point. He could have chosen to change his mind and uh, not betray Jesus. Maybe that was the point. Maybe Jesus is warning them. He's warning Judas not to go through with it. That could be what's going on here. And God says lots of times what people are going to do, and then they reform their ways. Because biblical prophecy, keep in mind... Biblical prophecy is people warning others of what's going to happen. That basic, the vast majority of biblical prophecy is that. It's not soothsaying. It's not fortune telling in a crystal ball. It's telling people what will happen. The Syrians are going to come and they're going to judge you. They're going to take you over uh, because this is God's punishment. Future free actions of entire nations are said by God. And then sometimes, sometimes the people repent, uh, judgment is spared, judgment's delayed, all sorts of things happen. But the initial prophecy is a warning, and that's how most prophecy works. So is, is Judas's freedom overridden? Is, is that the point here? I could predict future free actions of human beings. I could do it. It's not that hard to do. You know, I predicted uh, these last uh, few elections. Elections. I predicted free choices of millions of people in aggregate. I've done it. But he decided to anyway. But the point I'm making here with this philosophical issue of why, uh, how God can be angry, sorrowful, sad, even when he... I'm also good at predicting individual actions as well. I often tell my wife these jokes to rile her up. And they work because I know how people respond to certain jokes. And it's pretty funny. I like it. But, you know, individuals, they're easy to predict as well. If I'm dealing with a customer, I know if what I say is going to upset them, if they're not going to be upset, how they're going to respond, how they're going to react. You know, just dealing with people, knowing people, who they are, 
um, knowing people in general will give you insights into how people act and how people behave. But in the Bible, you know, they'll throw out Arminians, Calvinists, they'll throw out examples of individual actions which were predicted. But then they'll ignore counterexamples where individual actions were not predicted or predicted, but the person changed their ways and then God in turn repented. You know, that's Ezekiel 18, Ezekiel 18. When people change, God changes. That, that's the biblical message about individuals. Jeremiah 18 is about nations. Ezekiel 18 is about individuals. God responds to individual actions. That's the message of the Bible. But no, if God predicts one future for reaction of a human being, that means God has omniscience of the future. But you don't see them saying that I have omniscience of the future. Try to be consistent. Try to be consistent. And don't and counterexamples is where it's at. If there's one counterexample of God not knowing something in the future, that invalidates all of future omniscience. All of it. It's all out, out, out the window. Showing that someone has one piece of knowledge of what one individual is going to do in the future that doesn't prove omniscience. Doesn't. Especially not in the face of counterexamples. He knows with certainty something's going to happen. We see Jesus being troubled in his spirit when he confessed what would happen. When he confessed that Lazarus would betray him. Um, and then another one that come comes to mind right off the top of my head is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, you know, he was, he sweat drops of blood. And uh, he was troubled in his spirit. Uh, but he knew what was about to happen. He knew he'd be crucified. He knew he was going to be beaten by lawless men. He knew these things would happen with certainty. And um, yet he was troubled anyway. So these are some reasons why, how God can be troubled or in his spirit or weep or be sad or angry uh, even when we know something's going to Again, I don't know who he's arguing with. Maybe he has uh, someone in his personal life in mind. Uh, not me. I, I, I accept his points. Happen. Okay, so that's the philosophical reasons, just a few of them, why I reject open theism and also addressing one of their objections philosophically. All right, so right there, I'm going to kind of split this podcast. I'll split it in maybe two parts or something like that because already this has gone fairly long, fairly long. This Just a segment is half an hour. But we will pick up on our next podcast, part two of responding to Kerrigan Skelly. And he's a good guy. I like him. And, uh, you know, I just think he's... Uh, he might need to think through his arguments just a little bit more before he disclaims open theism for the reasons that he states. But uh, good job, Kerrigan Skelly, at being a street preacher, and you're doing a great job. And uh, I love you as a brother in Christ. So don't take out anything personally. I might come off as, as harsh sometimes. And I'm a very critical person and tough to deal with and, and very tactless. That's one of my problems. But, but I have nothing against you as a person. And I acknowledge that you are intellectually honest, at least. You, you consider other views, and you try to make the a best-case scenario of uh, your opponent's views. So thank you so much for that, and thank you so much for your intellectual honesty and dealing with the subject and trying to present open theism in an honest light. Thank you.